dear Crosswinds family and friends, welcome to Crosswinds Unleashed. Each week we're dedicated to bringing the best stories and biblical life principles from authentic believers. Our podcast breaks down the Christian life through interviews and practical instruction in what we hope will be a fun and accessible way. I'm Craig Cooper, the host of this podcast and lead pastor of Crosswinds Church. Let me give a special shout out to Elijah Merrill, our producer, and Sheldon Boyce, our assistant producer. Uh, they are the ones who work extremely hard week after week to put these out every Friday. And let me give a thanks out to you who listen. Without you listening, uh, there would be no reason for us to put the podcast together. If you want any more information about this podcast or anything Crosswinds related, um, please head on over to our website at crosswinds.church. Well, I'm really excited about this week's podcast. Um, we have in studio with us no stranger to the Crosswinds Unleashed podcast, Betty Ryan, executive pastor of Crosswinds Church. Great to have you with us, Betty. Good to be here today. Thanks, Craig. And we have a special guest with us, Bridget Heap, who's with Feed My Sheep Foundation. She's a research assistant with them, and she has graciously uh, said okay to come and be a part of this podcast. Bridget, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me out today. So we're gonna have a we're gonna have a great time digging into a topic that I believe is is certainly um, topics actually that that really are germane to our culture uh, and and as us as a church uh, this podcast goes out primarily to our church family and then friends and and all who will who will listen uh, but we want to sort of understand the issues that we're talk we're going to be talking about and then what can we do as a church to 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 be a part of um, bringing a, a lasting difference in the culture around us. But before we even jump into any of that, um, Bridget, if you don't mind, what, what's your background? Well, uh, so some personal information, I guess. I, <laughs> I, I've i been married for 15 years, and I have two kids. Uh, my daughter is 10, and my son is 8. And uh, I have an undergraduate degree in mathematics, and I have a master's degree in philosophical apologetics. And I've basically been a research associate with Feed My Sheep now for uh, since 2018. So, so tell me, what is a philosophical apologist? Okay, so apologetics uh, comes from the Greek word apologia, which does not mean to apologize. It actually means to defend. Uh, and so the idea of apologetics is to defend your faith. And the philosophical part of it just means that uh, I was trained in looking at logical arguments for human existence and reality and knowledge and using that to then defend our, our Christian beliefs or our faith. That's great. Um, what's the purpose or, or what's the, yeah, what's the purpose for Feed My Sheep Foundation and how did you get started with them? Uh, so... In 1997, Dr. John Sanford, uh, he's a geneticist, and he started Feed My Sheep Foundation. Basically, he wanted to create literature that was research-based that helped provide a Christian worldview for varying topics. Now, as a geneticist, he was doing most of this uh, in the sciences, but over time, he realized just how much our culture and our world really needed somebody to address um, deeper issues of sexuality. And so uh, my husband and I, we'd actually known Dr. Stanford for many years, and uh, one day he had come over to our house and he had a book, and I didn't realize he had published his own book and, and that he was working on this and, he, and that he was publishing these things. And so uh, at the time, I had worked for another publishing co company, Lamplighter, and I, I asked him, I said, oh, you know, if you ever need somebody to edit or format a book for you, I'd be interested in that. 
uh, and and I was a little nervous about it because I thought, oh, here he's this, you know, this, you know, world-renowned scientist, and you know, I've only ever worked on novels and things like that. So I didn't think he'd be interested, but he actually said, no, I I actually need somebody to help me write a book, and I had always been a writer at heart and always wanted to do that. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll definitely do this with you. Um, But he asked me to write the book, The Sexual Holocaust. And uh, that was a very difficult book to write because it looked at the physical, social, emotional, and spiritual harms of what we call anything goes sexuality. And so I went from one job of working in a, a fun publishing company, working, you know, like eight hours straight and just loving my job to all of a sudden doing research on this book. And I couldn't go more than like two to three hours at a time after just reading horrific stories from people and just their testimonies of abuse or just how they were feeling uh, lost or how they got caught up in addiction. I, w- I would I would just be so like shaking and numb. I, I just couldn't work for that long. Um, and so, but we got through it. Uh, you know, we spent a year or so doing the research and putting the book together. And so that was actually how I, I got started with Feed My Sheep was through that book, The Sexual Holocaust. So as we as we look at, you know, one of the, as I was looking on the website, uh, they talk about sort of the urgent um, public school crisis. Would you talk to us a little bit about that, the urgent public school crisis? What is that? And why is that a purpose that, that you as at Feed My Sheep Foundation see as something worth focusing on? Right. So after we finished up with the Sexual Holocaust book, that was in 2019, and we had just started to kind of promote the book and, and you know, the COVID pandemic happened. And all of a sudden, I think it became very evident to people what was happening in the schools. When kids all of a sudden had to be home and do their lessons from home, parents were saying, wait a second, you're, you're learning what? Or your teacher just said what? Um, and so it was natural for us to then take our global picture of what was happening with sexuality and now zoom in on what was happening within the schools. And so at that point, my colleague Carrie came on with me and uh, she she had been a school counselor. And so she had experienced a lot of these things firsthand, just kind of seeing what is being taught in the school district. And, uh, and so then together we had focused on then, okay, let's be able to explain what are kids learning why are these issues harmful and what can we do about it? And that was kind of how we started, um, you know, just our, our basic presentation that we give kind of focused on those three questions. Were you, were you shocked to find out what, what they are learning and what's accessible to them within the public school systems? Or was that something that you were prepared for as you were sort of preparing the book? Um, I was not prepared for the extent of it. Uh, and I think that a lot of parents still don't understand the extent of it. Um, There are books that are sitting in our schools today that if an adult read them, they would be mortified and and they'd be blushing and, and they would not be able to read the book without being affected by it. And yet books like these are are being allowed in schools. And so I I think that I was aware, obviously, that things were trending um, kind of in a very chaotic way, but I never really understood the 
the full extent of it until I really dug in and got my hands on a lot of these books, read some of these curriculums, listened to, um, you know, just teachers and their comments about the way that they're they're teaching and what they're integrating into the classrooms now. It, it really shocked me. Do you find when you're – because I know when we were first introduced to each other, you actually came to Crosswinds and, and did a presentation for us. As you're doing presentations all over the place now within our region, I don't know if you go beyond our region. I'm sure, you, sure you're doing that too. New York. I, so far it's just so been far it's New York. York. So yep. yeah, outside our region, yep. but still throughout yeah. the state. Yeah. What is the reaction? First of all, what audiences are you, are you talking to? And then what is the reaction of the different audiences that you're presenting this information to? Yeah, so mostly um, it's been – I have found this shocking. Mostly it's actually been grandparents. Um, so I'm in my 30s, and the parents my age are missing, I think partly because they're just really super busy. They've got young kids at home. They're trying to balance the job and, and everything else. So mostly it's been grandparents that have shown up um, to presentations. But that being said – Community members, parents, grandparents, that's who we've focused this, um, our presentations to. And one of the things I always like to ask at the presentations is, okay, how many of you feel like you understand what's going on? And, you know, out of a presentation with 60 people, we get like five people raise their hand and say, okay, I feel like I understand what's going on. So the majority of parents and grandparents don't understand. And what we've actually found really interesting is that we've been doing this now for over a year going throughout New York and and presenting on these issues. And just recently, I've gotten several organizations calling us back and saying, hey, we'd like you to do another presentation. And I thought they wanted, okay, something new, like what's next? What are we working on now? And they're saying, no, we're finding that parents and community members still don't know what's going on. We want you to come back and do that original presentation still. So that was interesting for me too, to find that out, that just from an organizational perspective, they're realizing that, that parents still don't understand. Yeah, I wonder I wonder just the way that some of the issues that we're going to be um, talking about here in a moment, you know, I wonder the way that it's presented sometimes in culture, as if those of us who are raising sort of the, the, the flag of warning are sort of extremists, you know, it's not that big a deal. Um, you know, what we're saying sometimes is challenge is even not true. Um, I know uh, a lady from our church was looking in their library and was saying, you know, I believe some of these books are here, was told, no, there's no way those books are here. And then she pulled them and showed them to the librarian and said, well, here they are, you know. And so even even that type of um, labeling as extremist or is, is – I wonder if that doesn't cloud the view of some people who are going, okay, it may be an issue but not quite as big an issue as it really is. What do, what do you think as you talk to people in those seminars? I mean, you said they're, they're surprised. But as they take that information to others, how, how is it being received secondhand? Have you heard any feedback from those who are attending those seminars? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I've really gotten a lot of feedback about that secondhand information for then when they pass it on to others. Um, but I, I will say, though, that we have noticed firsthand that people do right off the bat have an assumption that if you're going to talk about sexuality or gender, that, you know, you as a Christian, you're you're just a hater. You you must be bigoted. All of these things. Uh, for example, we did a parenting conference in January, and uh, 
there were going to be protesters that came out, and it was actually another church that came out, and they were protesting our event, and we asked them, we said, you know, you're welcome to come in if you want and sit and listen to everything that we're saying, and we'd love to have a conversation with you about this, but they didn't they didn't want to listen, and so that's the part that just seems really sad is that people automatically assume that you've got a certain perspective, and they're not even willing to talk about it. So I, th- I think that's at least what I'm hoping is that the more that people are willing to talk about these issues, they'll see that in a lot of areas, we do agree on a lot of different things. When it comes to protecting children, there's a majority of people out there who want to protect and love children. Now, do we agree on what that means to love children? No, maybe we disagree. There are some people that may think that it's more loving to affirm a child in their new gender identity versus affirming them as their biological sex, and maybe that's how they're trying to love the kid. Um, But the idea is that I think if we can come to the table and sit down and talk about it, we'll find that, okay, there are common grounds that we can talk about. There's also the scientific perspective that we can talk about. Um, And then we can talk about the overall effect of what what we're seeing. I mean, there's studies out there that talk about the effect of affirming kids in their new gender identity versus not and what the effect of those things are. Well, there's definitely, you know, I know uh, myself in conversations, it, it, there's a there's a lack of ability by some. I mean, it's almost as if we haven't trained anyone in rhetoric anymore to actually have a conversation. And, and as that conversation uh, isn't able to happen, I, I don't know where you go with that, you know, uh, if you're not able to listen uh, to, to someone who has a different view than yours and then actually your whole degree, uh, master's degree was in that. Yeah. And it becomes ineffective if no one's willing to actually have a conversation. And, you know, some of the things that, that are now being um, brought before us as normal, I think, uh, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you. If, and, and, and as I look at my, in college, we'd sit around and watch SNL, you know, Saturday Night Live or In Living Color was the one back then. The things that now are being touted as this is normal, this is okay, were part of those programs jokes, you know? I mean, you know, and so I wonder, you talk about grandparents. So I have a four-year-old grandchild and I have a two-year-old grandson. Um, we've seen it go from comedy to like normal, like being told this is normal now. And the same programs, by the way, um, now won't ever say a joke that they would have decades ago because now it's it's sort of become part of the mainstream culture. And so I wonder sometimes as grandparents, you're going, you just seen this extreme um, pendulum, if you will, and and maybe that's that's part of it, right? Is is just seeing it over time, over over several decades. I'm not that old. Over a few decades, um, just to, to to change in our culture on issues of sexuality. Not saying that all the jokes were appropriate, mm-hmm. but I, I point that out to say that it was stated as a joke because it was seen back then almost ridiculous to have accepted some of the things that are being accepted now. Sure. Yeah. And so let, let's dive into that a little bit. What what type of things are being sort of introduced in our culture as fact that isn't. So um, I'll say this. We're going to talk about gender and sexuality. So I'll probably throw out some ideas in, in both of those arenas. And obviously, they're very related to each other. But I would say the first one is the concept of gender versus biological sex. Um, you know, like you're talking about, okay, grandparent generation, growing up, the idea of gender and biological sex, those terms were synonymous. Um, there were two genders, male and female. There were two biological sexes, male and female. 
So today what has happened is gender is now a term that is different from your biological sex. It's something that is internal and it's your understanding of who you are. And it's often characterized by either being feminine or masculine or some kind of spectrum in between. Maybe people are even neither of those things. And so they've tried to separate those concepts. And so that's very confusing, especially for older generations to say, wait a second then, what, what is gender? Because in a sense, it's a very abstract concept. Um, and so children are being taught that when a child is born, their biological sex, um, a doctor or a parent looks at their biological sex and, and assigns them either male or female. But really, that child can grow up to have any gender or any spectrum because that gender can even change. It could change day to day, year to year. It's fluid. Um, and so these are some of the concepts that, that kids are being taught. So it's all of a sudden gone from, okay, boys and girls are different and we can identify them to now saying, well, just because somebody biologically has this body doesn't mean that they're male or female. You know, you have to wait until they tell you or they'll let you know or you have to wait until they figure it out. Um, and so there's a lot of confusion and pressure on kids nowadays to, to understand these concepts. For example, there's one book that's meant for uh, preschoolers, I think, to first or third grade, and there's a little wheel that the kids can spin around and they can actually pick their gender, and they have 18 choices in that to choose from. So that's just one example of just something that kids are being taught. It's very confusing. Let me, let me, uh, let me ask his question and help clarify to some who may be unfamiliar with some of this. Um, so 18 genders to choose from. So it's not just an issue of a biologically born male identifying as female or a biologically born female later identifying as male. Um, if I'm making sure my math, I'm a little intimidated because your undergrad was in mathematics. <laughs> but but if there, you said it was 18 different yeah. ones on there. So if I'm right, it's like um, – what, 16 uh, other ones that they could have chose from? Yeah, so there are things like two-gender and third-gender and bi-gender and non-binary. And, I mean, there's just – honestly, even out of the 18, like, there's more than that. It's just they kind of said, oh, here are kind of like, you know, the common ones, I guess, that they that they gave to kids. But basically any person can identify themselves the way that they want to identify and themselves. And how old were the kids who were playing this game? Uh, these are kids who are anywhere from four or five years old to seven, eight. Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, again, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than that. Um, and for me to wrap my mind around that is difficult. Uh, to matter of fact, um, you know, when I think of the logic of that, it, it's hard to even bring it into logic in some ways for me. I, maybe it's my limitation, but it's just hard to do that. Cognitively... A child that old, are, are they able to even wrap their mind around what they're being presented at all? I think they can superficially. Um, the problem is that at kids at such a young age, they have a tendency to, first of all, believe the first thing that they hear. And they also have a tendency to believe what they're being told versus what they see. And so when you tell a kid, oh, there's all these different genders and you can 
choose whichever one you want or whatever you feel like or whatever your preference is, that ends up sticking with the kid instead of walking around looking and seeing, oh, okay, I, I see bodies that are male and female. And so I think that they can understand it to a point, but that doesn't mean it's not distorted. So the way that I at least relate this to is when I was younger, I had a weird concept of what it meant to write a check. Like, <laughs> sure. you know, there's one time that I was going to the grocery store with my mom and, um, I remember my mom saying something about like, oh, having enough to pay for like all the groceries or whatever. And I just remember saying to her, oh, just well, write a check. You know, and I had this concept that like, oh, if you didn't have money, you wrote the check and it magically appeared. And I think that that's kind of the same thing with kids when we're talking about issues that they don't have a concept of what's going on behind what it means to write a check and that there's a checking account back there and that, you know, the money's all connected. And It's like going to an ATM machine, figuring it, all I need is a card. Right, yeah. I don't need so, anything in the account, so yeah, I just need the card. Yeah, so kids have, I think, a, a weird distortion of things. And that, that's what happens then with these concepts of gender and sexuality is you're really giving them these concepts that they're they're not quite – really ready to understand fully behind all of that. Yeah, I remember my son, he was about five or six and wanted something. I said, we don't have the money for that right now. And he said, Dad, are we poor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, but we, we don't have the money for that right, right now. So, yeah. you know, but that, his thought was, well, my goodness, you should have money for everything, you know? And yeah, that, that's, that's just, um, it, it's striking to me. And so when, when we look at that then, you know, what... What, what does this uh, comprehensive sexual education and, and the gender ideology being taught in the public schools, what effect does that have on our children then? Sure. So going to, back to that idea that kids have a distorted view of things, if you give a kid the concept of sexual intercourse or sexual pleasure before they are physically ready, before they're mentally ready, before they're emotionally ready, then you're giving them these concepts and you're opening up their mind and their thoughts to to these concepts that they're not ready to really understand fully. And so, you know, the idea of teaching the kids kids about birds and bees and, and they see reproduction and things like frogs and, you know, you can talk about all those things. They can understand those concepts. But if you're talking to a kid about pleasuring themselves sexually. And that's actually a very common topic in elementary schools is, is that concept of, you know, self-pleasuring. You're really opening up their mind and their emotions to something that they can't understand, well, why then? Why were we physically built this way? And, and there's, there's so much behind there that it gets distorted. And oftentimes what's happening through these comprehensive sex ed programs is certain sexual behaviors are being promoted because they align with what the culture values rather than what is healthy for the kid. So for example, our, our culture is not a culture of life, it's a culture of death. And we see that in the abortion rates versus the amount of promoting of contraception. So the idea of let's limit the number of kids and pregnancies we have and, you know, we focus on abortion. So if that's one of the values in our society and our culture today, then something, for example, like anal and oral sex are going to be promoted to children because there's no risk of pregnancy. 
The problem then is that kids are being taught that, you know, depending on a person's gender and their sexual orientation then, you know, not everybody's heterosexual. They're going to engage in other sexual activities. So this is being normalized then. And yet there are much more significant health concerns related to those types of sexual activities rather than just your traditional, you know, sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. So kids are coming out of these classes and, you know, they're reading these books and they're getting a very distorted view of what it really means to have healthy sexuality. Uh, just another example of this, I had read an article about a school in Syracuse, how they had had a sex education teacher come in and, and teach a course. And one of the children had asked a question about the contraception that the teacher was showing them and, and talking to them about, you know, what they all do and things like that. The kid had asked a question about, well, what are the side effects of the different forms of contraception? And the educator's response was, well, everybody's body's different, so you just have to find what works for you. Instead of fully explaining to children that there are a lot of side effects with using many of these different forms of contraception. So I think kids are not getting the full picture of what it means to have healthy sexuality and why we have sexuality. You know, why did God create us being men and, and women and, and why did he create, you know, sexual intercourse? All of that is being missed out on and then kids get this distorted view then and they're trying to navigate what you know, they're being told, well, this is normal and this is okay. And if you actually look at studies and you look at statistics, the majority of teens that end up sexually active regret that they became sexually active. They wish that they had waited. But our society today assumes kids are sexual from birth. They assume they're just going to engage in the sexual activity. They assume that kids have a right to sexual pleasure. And then the lessons that the kids sit through or the books that they're reading then kind of just promotes that concept of this is normal, just this lifestyle is is normal. And, and then kids end up really confused and hurting afterwards because they wish that they had waited. They wish that they had saved that intimacy for somebody that that they could be with the rest of their life. So it's a very it's very confusing and there's a lot of health issues that come along with it too with, with kids. Let me ask you this as a researcher because it's a question I've asked myself quite a bit is so you're a researcher, and we assume that there's researchers who are promoting these things, but yet you're looking at, I would assume, the research. And when you say that about children who you know have these early sexual encounters, and many of them regret it statistically, are they ignoring the research? Are they just... Why, if the research is there, and we know the harmful realities of some of these things... Why is that not being spoken of out in the world? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think I think it is being ignored. And let me give you an example of this. Um, a lot of the research and studies that we have today on the transgender issue actually have come from from Europe. For example, Sweden has a great study that they did. And... So a lot of our research comes from that, and a lot of these countries were very um, pro-transgender. They were very supportive of that, very supportive of LGBTQ rights. Recently, this past year, a lot of these nations that 
were very supportive of this have all of a sudden backed off because their research is showing that if you encourage and promote transgenderism to minors and you encourage them to get onto hormones or to have sex reassignment surgeries, you're, you're actually causing more problems because the studies are showing that had you just affirmed them as their biological sex, the majority of these kids that have this gender confusion will actually feel comfortable in their biological sex by the time they're an adult. So a lot of these nations have actually pulled back and said, no, we're not allowing these treatments for minors. The U.S. is not doing that. We're ignoring everything that we've seen so far in studies and what other nations have gone through, and and they're kind of ahead of us in this. So it would be wise for us to look at that and say, wait a second, we need to halt what we're doing as far as treatment for minors, and yet we're not. So I think... I think there's a lot of research that's being ignored in a lot of areas, whether it's about the comprehensive sex education programs or whether it's about, you know, talking to kids about gender confusion. I think it's um, so important that that we camp there just for a minute, because when we hear when we hear when I when I hear the discussion so-called discussion being happened in, in the marketplace, per se, you know, outside of church and so forth, we'll hear that America's behind everything. Like we're so far behind, so far behind on, on these issues of, of gender and so far behind. But what you're saying is actually those who accepted this way before we as Americans did have now not necessarily gone full circle, but are asking really hard questions about what they had done. They've stopped certain things so we're not behind, we're behind in the sense that we're actually going down a path that others have learned from, and we're not willing to learn from what they've learned. Now that's sort of a very uh, sort of a hard way to say it, uh, but you know, it, 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 talk to me a little bit about that because that, that's concerning for me. Because if you're sitting there as a parent and you're hearing this information, not from you, but from someone else who's sort of pro this. Um, you would think, wow, we're on top of this. Like, we just want to catch up with the rest of the world. But we're not catching up with the rest of the world because there's parts of the world who have accepted this who don't accept these things as, as they had before. What's that about? And what do you say to a parent who's wrestling with that? Yeah, I, I think that parents are often targeted by activists to get on board with these issues because they know that a parent has so much influence over their child when it comes to the child's values and perspectives of sexuality and gender. So what ends up happening is activists are are trying to teach and train and in some ways scare parents that if you're not willing to affirm your child in their new gender identity or even in their new sexual identities, whatever it might be, your child's going to commit suicide. And that's a terrifying thought for a parent. And so a parent is going to jump on board and, okay, I want to do anything to prevent, you know, my child from committing suicide. So what ends up happening is they get fed all of these activists, you know, suggestions for how to, you know, help protect your child and how to affirm your child and how to make sure that they have a safe environment and a safe, you know, space at school and all of these things. And, and yet what ends up missing is all of that research, the research that would have told the parent, no, if you affirm them as their biological sex, you know, the majority of them feel comfortable as their biological sex by the time that they're an adult. Um, so the parents end up missing out on a lot of that research. And to be honest, 
it's not it's not always easy to find and navigate through information today. I mean, it's difficult to understand, okay, what is the truth? Am I actually reading a good study or am I reading something that is a faulty study? And so it takes a lot of time to dig into that. And I think that's why parents my age are often missing in the conversation is because they're too busy with work. They're too busy you know, trying to get dinner on the table for their kids. And it's a lot to wade through then to read all those studies to understand what they mean. You know, was it a specific percentage of the population that was studied? Or is this in general, there's, there's a lot to wade through. Where, where can they go? I know, I know, uh, Feed My Sheep Foundation has a lot of this information. So where can they, where could a parent go to find out or anyone go to find out more information? Um, and from what you have to offer them? So we at least have a resource list on our website that we direct parents uh, to go to several different organizations and studies and articles and uh, parent guides and videos. I mean, there's just, there is a ton of information out there. And we've tried to focus on that, which we think is um easy enough and simple enough that, you know, the common lay person can can read and understand and get the gist of, of what's going on. It's not too bogged down with all of the science and technical terms. Um, and so I, I would suggest at least starting there. I mean, going through that resource list. And where would they find that resource list? Um, on our website. Uh, we've got a page that has Is that the Feed resource. My Sheep Foundation? It's, it's fmsfound.org. fmsfound.org. Yep. Great. Well... That's it for this podcast, but when we get back for the next week's podcast, I want to start with a question, really, of what suggestions would you make for parents to prepare and protect their children in the midst of this crisis? And, and uh, not just parents, but I'm going to go as far as to say churches uh, after that. You know, what can we do as a church family uh, in this area, too? Uh, but, Bridget, thank you so much for, for being here this week. I look forward to continuing our conversation next week. Um, I hope uh, I hope you will um, be join us next week as we continue this conversation. Uh, there's a lot more uh, I'd like to get to, um, but if you have any questions, you can either reach out to us at crosswinds.church or again, Bridget, do you mind giving that website one more time? Yep, it's fmsfound.org. Dot org. And, and, uh, and we'll continue the conversation next week. And I'll tell you what, let your friends know about this podcast and let your friends know about Feed My Sheep Foundation uh, because uh, actually we'll start next week. The question I'm really going to have is what really is loving? It, what does that really look like? Because I think our culture has redefined that. And that will lead us into the discussion on what we can do as parents in church. But for now, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, if we could be of any help to you, again, contact us through crosswinds.church. Uh, and as always, be blessed and continue to bless others. Mm-hmm.